I'm a little embarrassed here. I think I misunderstood the assignment because all of my research involves like um, like orthodontics and shit, but uh, I can bring up some of what I uh, found. Apparently ortho means like straight or correct. Um, and daunt Jesus. means tooth. So it's like, it's sort of both of those things together is like straightening out teeth, which is interesting. Um, That's fascinating. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. I'm really proud of that bit. Thank you for staying and laughing for it. Um, anyway. <laughs> Hey there, I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is Take Three, a movie podcast. Take one. Tomorrow is 4th of July. Oh, yes. And this is our summer blockbuster episode. And what better way to celebrate 4th of July, as much as we can celebrate 4th of July, uh, (laughs) what better way to celebrate 4th of July then by bringing on Joe to talk about Jaws. Joe doing Jaws. And if you don't know Joe, why the hell not? Who doesn't know Joe? Everybody knows Joe. Yeah, Joe. It's Joe. It's Joe. It's Joe. Y'all know Joe. Tell us how you know Joe. (laughs) I know Joe through uh, an internship that I had when I lived and went to school in Philadelphia. It was probably the most awkward experience of my life, not because of Joe. It just really didn't fit in there at all, and I was not prepared for what I was assigned, I guess. But the other interns there are the ones that I connected with a lot better than the actual people I worked under. So it was fun. It was fun. And I... uh, I honestly, since graduating college, hadn't really spoken to Joe until we started this podcast. And I think he kind of caught wind of it. And that's when we were sort of, uh, I guess, rekindled the conversation. And uh, we've been kind of chatting since. And it's finally time to bring him on. Yes, it has been a while and we are so ready. Uh, I met Joe when he sold me a horse. I needed a horse uh, for reasons I'm not going to get into. And Joe is the guy to go to when you need to acquire various horses. The horse died, but (coughs) our friendship lives on. So This is not a great ad for Joe. Yeah, sorry, Joe. The horse dying had nothing to do with Joe. Like, I'm not saying he sold me a bad horse. So Joe does not sell faulty horses? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was riding over a cliff and the horse didn't make it. (laughs) You Thelma and Louise did. Yes. <laughs> Jesus. This movie is called Jaws, and you have never seen it. I saw it a while ago, but I liked it. I thought it was fine. I've never even heard of it. What's the? Is it like a killer dentist or something? It is. No, a killer orthodontist. I think would be more accurate if it's Jaws. I feel like if it were, if it were named Teeth, it'd either be about a dentist. Or a killer vagina, one of the two. Ah. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> there is a movie called Teeth, and it is about a killer vagina. You are correct. And 
you're gonna get you're gonna want me to take this out. That's gonna be in my notes when when Probably. I get when I get my edit notes. That's gonna be one of them. Probably, I am sure of it. So obviously, I know what Jaws is, but I've not seen it, and that is one of the classics that I need to catch up on that I have not yet. All I know is that it's a killer shark, and that's really that's it. I don't really know anything else about it. I mean, that is kind of a lot of the, the story. There's other things going on that I think, at least I remember being interesting enough. I mean, this is a Steven Spielberg movie, so most of his movies are good. This movie had a lot to do with, if not invented, the summer blockbuster. <laughs> this is definitely a movie that people associate with summer for multiple reasons, obviously. There are people in my family that watched this film and won't go into the water on the, at the beach. Oh my goodness. Like I think Jaws is why my mom has a pool. Like because she would never want to go to the beach. Thank God for Jaws then. Aren't you yeah. thankful for Jaws? <laughs> I am. I am. Lots of <laughs> swimming fun and in a sharkless pool. <laughs> Okay, let me tell y'all a story really quick. I was actually swimming yesterday with uh, two of my, I guess, okay, so sometimes I feel like they're my cousins. Sometimes I would consider them like my nieces because they're children, eight and five. And one of my cousins who is one of their moms, and we were asking, you guys know Briley, right? We were talking about uh, like what animal would you like to be if you could be an animal? Madeline, who is the other niece or cousin, said she would want to be a horse. But Briley said she would want to be a chicken because she would want to wake everybody up. And I was like, that's a rooster. But I thought it was really funny because she, she thought it was hysterical. She was like, oh, well, then I want to be a basketball. I'm like, okay, that's not an animal, probably. <laughs> uh, and then she says, if I could be a sea animal, I would be a shark so I could eat your head. She would, too. This happened yesterday. I was like, this is a story <laughs> worth telling in the Jaws episode. <laughs> but anyway, this episode is about Jaws and Joe. And Joe is not only a very avid listener of our podcast, he's actually a very talented musician, which is very cool. He's got a couple albums out now. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very talented guy, and we are lucky to have him here, and we'll have him soon. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about Jaws? Nope. I Tornadoes are like the scariest thing to me, so I'm, I'm ready to be frightened and surprised, and I'm I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> this is the reaction that I need from oh my, my jokes. <laughs> First of all, shout out to Nick and Jordan for killing it as always. Am I right? Yeah, they're awesome. Hey, I'm Stephen Crocker. I wanted to take a second to invite you to check out my new podcast called Dumbest in the Room. I talk with people who have different jobs and are life experiences and learn a little bit about what it is that they do and how they got there. The best way to stay learning is to always be the dumbest in the room. It's been a lot of fun talking with and learning from people, and I hope you'll join me. You can follow Dumbest in the Room at Dumbest ITR on all platforms, and the show is available everywhere you get podcasts. Back to you guys. Take two. Welcome to Take Three. Wait, no, that's this is take two. Okay, welcome to take two, everyone. And guess who is here with us? Nope. <laughs>
Not her. We've suddenly turned into Dora the Explorer now. Not them either. I'm just going to tell you, it's Joe. <laughs> Welcome, Joe. Welcome, hey, Joe, to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. And Jordan's here as well. Um, Moving on. (laughs) He decided to show up. We all just watched Jaws. Before we talk about this viewing, uh, let's do a little bit of a take one for you, Joe. How do you feel about this film? (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) My My phone goes off during every podcast. Nobody contacts me until we start podcasting. This is like the witching hour for me. Everyone calls me at 9 o'clock, so I'm with you. (laughs) I don't even know how to explain it. It's just every fucking time we podcast. Okay, sorry. Go go ahead, Joseph. So this is like one of my favorite movies. But beyond that, um, the first time I ever saw it was on a family trip to Cape Cod where a lot of this was filmed. And I was a little kid. Um, So it's like, oh, you watch a movie, fun, fun. Uh, You know, I was a pretty accustomed to horror movies as a kid because I was the youngest of like an all boys in the neighborhood. Um, so I was like, whatever, it's just a movie. Then you go to the beach and the surrounding town looks exactly like a movie. Oh my God. And it just gets weirder and weirder. And we were there for 4th of July weekend. Oh my God. Whose idea yeah. was it to watch that movie with you? I think it was mine. I oh feel like God. I remember pulling it because we were at someone else's house in mm. Cape Cod. And I remember seeing it, I was like, oh, shark, can we watch the shark movie? <laughs> Holy crap. Jeez. That is yeah, too was, funny. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a wild trip, but ever since then, Jaws is like my summer my summer movie. That might have been like the best take one we've ever uh had anybody <laughs> do. Nobody has ever had that cool of a story to tell, including us. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I had a fear of swimming pools for a while, too, so it didn't really help out as much as uh, I would have hoped, you know? Damn. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Like, so you just, guys weren't afraid of the of the shark in the swimming pool as kids? Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Kids are stupid. Yes. <laughs> I was you a You just look towards kid. that deep end. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Jordan, you weren't a dumb kid like us? No? Well, I, okay. I can't say that I was ever afraid of sharks in the pool no i'm sorry i guess i'm just a little bit smarter than y'all i don't know (laughs) i i have a question uh are you more afraid of sharks or bears i am more afraid of i would say bears all right goodbye (laughs) i'm ending this early (laughs) this is just gonna be a take two episode this is like a running question in his family about okay. what's scarier, sharks or bears? It's like it's like the Capulets and the Montagues. Like, if it's me personally, I would say bears just because I feel like I'm around more bear territory than shark territory. But I've been going to the shore a lot recently, so now I am afraid of sharks. <laughs> the more I think about it. See, um, he's coming over. I think it's situational. I think it's situational. You have to pick you one. You know, I'm not afraid of a shark when I'm in Philadelphia, but if I'm down the shore... Get off that fence, so. Joe. Get off that fence. <laughs> Jordan, remind me what side you're on just so we can tell our audience. I would probably say that the shark is scarier. I don't know. I don't think I could outswim a shark. That's, Thank that's you. scarier to me. But Have you seen Jaws? <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, so how does everybody feel about Jaws? I had a fun time. It was actually it was a lot different than I was expecting. I I think clearly this movie is split up into like two parts where one is more like on the beaches and then the second part is more in the boat. I thought it was going to be like all on the boat. I didn't realize that we spent so much time on the beach. Um so that was interesting and different. This is the first time I had seen this show. I don't know if you knew this or not. Chronically uncultured here. Um but I did it and it was a fun time. I I thought it was it surprised me how believable the effects were. Yeah, there's actually a lot out there about the shark. And yeah. like one of the reasons why the shark is not in the movie as much is because there was a lot of technical difficulties. Okay, Joe, how did you feel about this movie? Um, I mean, same as I've always felt about it, I guess. I love it. Um, I also read the book. I don't know if you guys noticed that in the beginning or if you talked about it. Um, but it is based off of a book. I did not um, know that. Yeah. What's the book, the book called? Is Jaws. <laughs> ah, all right. I think the author did help write some of the screenplay. Um, his name is in the beginning. Um, but yeah, so I always just look for differences between the book and the movie always. But I don't know. New themes always pop up. There's always uh, the main standout lines because it's Jaws. But I think after, you know, now that it's my hundredth time watching it or whatever, um, I'm finding like the lines that I'm repeating back at the screen are never those lines. It's always other tinier lines. Um, it's like the Great Gatsby. It's like every line, there's somewhere that you can, some gem you can pull out of every conversation in the movie. That's awesome. I'm glad that you still appreciate it after your hundredth view too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have a preference like the book or the movie? I think they're two perfect things in their in their own way because they are slightly different. Um, but I would say the movie has to be the movie. I don't mean to like put this on you and I can even cut this out if you don't want to do this. But I would love for you to tell us like some of the differences between the book and the movie in take three. That'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So for me, I had seen it once. It's been a while. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I appreciate the beginning for what it is. But when they get on the boat, it's like, ugh. I just love that whole sequence. Like, those three guys are just so likable. I just really appreciate each of them for the roles that they are filling. Even though I can't really understand Quint, I definitely had to turn my subtitles on. He's, like, hard oh, to... Right. Sometimes, <laughs> just the way he talks is a little rough. He is a British actor. Oh, really? Yeah, he, uh, Robert Shaw is British, so I think he's doing... Um, or he's some, you know, maybe Scottish or something, but he is doing an American accent. Oh, cool. Good deal. Never would have known that. Yeah, it's some weird, I don't know. I mean, it's a very weird uh, accent. I don't know where in America that's from, but uh, it's definitely... Just generic fishermen, I yeah. think. <laughs> <laughs> They're all just really likable. As far as the shark goes, it is really terrifying when it, like, approaches and... Uh, with the music. Oh, and the music's really great. I wonder who did the score to that. Jordan doesn't appreciate John Williams. Oscar winning John Williams. I've never heard of the guy. I did like this score. Even the most dramatic moments weren't scored at all, and I appreciate that. I think something yeah. that is just as impressive as scoring a movie is knowing when to like not have music and when to build that suspense Absolutely. and stuff. 
But right. I thought it was masterfully done. Dun, 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 dun. Like that is so unnerving. I don't even like to think about it. Like when he was underwater. Oh my God. Okay. My point is the shark is very scary until he just kind of flops up on the deck. <laughs> right. just, I was like, oh, you're not real. It's like the spam out of the can. It just, yeah, just kind it's of like, flops over. The- <laughs> but uh, to think that this was made like so long ago, this was Steven Spielberg's second big film. Right. I don't remember what was before, but. Sugarland Express. And I don't like that was a feature film, but I don't know how big it was. I like I know a couple of things he had done before then, like Duel, but those were all TV movies. Right. You know, he had some experience, but to to come out of the gate swinging like this, it's very impressive. I don't know what's going to happen to Spielberg, uh, but I think he has a a bright future. I think he might make something of himself one day. It's uh, kids going places, definitely. For sure. I know this is a take three discussion typically, but I remember when I rented it on Amazon, they typically have like a score, like stars that it's rated. This is the first time I've ever seen a five star rating on a movie that I've rented. And I just really quick looked up the um, the Rotten Tomatoes score. It's got a 98 uh, yep. for critics and 90% for audience. Like this is it's a big deal movie. I don't know too many people that don't, love it only having watched it one time before and not really remembering a lot of it so many of the quotable things just completely went over my head there is a there's a production company i can't even think of what it's called it might just be called bad hat harry but like there's someone that comes mm-hmm. out yeah. at the end of the tv show is like that's some bad hat harry it's house md oh yeah okay yeah perfect yeah. yes mm-hmm. that's exactly where i've seen it uh my dad calls one of his best friends Hooper. That's like his nickname. And I did not ever realize why. Like, obviously, it's been referenced over the years, but you just don't even realize how much, you know? Right. This, And even in my life, just from how much I watch it, I don't realize how much I quote it <laughs> until people are like, why? Because <laughs> I like the people I work with, I'll be like, Oh, no, no, no. Hooper drives the boat, Chief. Like, what? <laughs> Never call anyone Chief. And the other is uh, my favorite little line is um, when everything's going crazy and uh, Chief Brody is going back in to use the radio right before Quint smashes it with the bat. Yeah. And he's like, where are you going? He's like, I got to make a phone call. <laughs> and anytime there's like chaos around me and I'm just going to leave, I usually yell, I got to make a phone call. I'm just... <laughs> I love it. Bust out of the room. (laughs) I love it. I thought that that part was a little odd, like that he just smashed the phone. Maybe you can help me understand what was the point of that. I mean, it has a lot to go back to the whole Indianapolis, the USS Indianapolis story. Oh, okay. And uh, the ending of that where he talks about, like, I'll never put a life vest on again because he doesn't want to be bobbing up and down in the water just waiting. So... It's kind of like how he's fighting his own internal monologue with, oh, no, no, like we're going to go back to shore. Because I think that that all happens after they turn the boat around or they're about to. Yeah, yeah. He, it's, he gives like this give and take between what Brody wants because he's like the kid who's always afraid on the trip. Like, can we just go back mm-hmm. home? Can we? <laughs> and he's like trying to give him, but he knows he can't. So it's like that fight. So eventually he's just like smashes the radio. It says like we either have to fight this thing now or sink, I guess. Yeah. And then he when he blows up the motor, that doesn't help either. <laughs> he just seems so sure that they're gonna make it back and he's the only one that dies. 
<laughs> right, right. That. I was actually very happy because Hoover was my favorite character. I was very happy that he survived because I was not sure when he went down there. I'm like, oh, crap. I know that Jaws fucks this cage <laughs> up, but I don't remember if he eats him or not. That was really neat. It's Yeah. Um, then you're going to enjoy take three. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, if you want me to talk about the book, it might be a little uh, might be a little sad for you. Wait, really? It might be. Okay, well, let's, yeah, let's save it for take three, but I'm definitely very intrigued. There's a whole world to Hooper. If he's your favorite character, there's a whole world to Hooper. He was mine, too. I was going to talk about how, like, adorable he was and how I wanted his hat and, like, <laughs> like, I don't know. I just really liked him, too. That's interesting. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Richard Dreyfus is awesome. He has that, such a weird youthfulness to him, but mm-hmm. also, like, him. he's also a know-it-all, yeah. so he's... Kind of going toe to toe with both of these guys because he's supposed to be in his like twenties, and these are you know more adult men. I love that he's supposed to be in his twenties. That's funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, well, he's supposed to be like just out of college, like a doctorate student, I think. So Jesus, twenty seven, I guess. One of my favorite parts was when he, uh, I guess, some people were were leaving out in a boat, and there was like too many of them or something. There was some problem. He's like, "Yep, they're gonna die." <laughs> just like, All right, he's my favorite. He's a cool dude. I like him. <laughs> oh my gosh, when they were comparing different like scars and stuff like that on the boat, it, he like puts his leg up, and then they cross legs. I'm like, "Oh, they're gonna fuck." I was like, <laughs> certain. I was like, "Man, I don't remember this part, but it might happen." I don't know. It, it definitely looks suspect. For a moment there, but um, it definitely raises your eyebrows more to why your dad and his friends quoted so much. If that's <laughs> really what the scene would be, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of that behavior was going on too. Absolutely. <laughs> Did you guys ever hear the joke about watching Jaws backwards? No, no. It's about a shark born out of an explosion who throws up so many people they have to open up a new beach. Ah! <laughs> I love oh that. <laughs> You could do that to so many movies. I love that. That's a great. Uh, that's a great joke setup. I like that. I think someone told me that in like the school hallway. <laughs> like a friend of mine just walked up and was like, "Hey, do you know what Jaws is backwards?" Said it and just walked away. Like didn't even <laughs> didn't even wait to hear me laugh or whatever. He just said it and kept, kept walking. moving. <laughs> He's like, "I got to go tell other people about this." <laughs> right. <laughs> that is too funny. Obviously, like, like this is the shark movie, but there are obviously a ton of imitators. There's never going to be a movie about a shark that doesn't pull something from Jaws. Like, it is the iconic shark movie, and that makes sense. I want to share some of the more ridiculous shark movies that I've found because <laughs> there are some really funny ones. Not now, but like in Take Three. It's a beautiful premise. It's just, what if there's just a big monster that can eat you? Yeah. For an hour, for an hour and a half, you guys are just in the water somehow, and there's just a big monster that can eat you at any time. Exactly. It's, it's so absurd that it always works, at <laughs> least comedically, um, unintentionally. There's one called Santa Jaws, and it's this kid that finds this like notebook, and if he draws Santa Jaws, he like comes to life, and it's a shark with a santa hat that is killing people but it's like just don't go near the water if you're worried like you're in your house dude like why are you freaking out (laughs) speaking of 
other shark movies. Have either of you seen the sequels to this film? No, I've seen uh, I've seen the second and the third one, and I think I saw the third one once, and the second one I've seen a few times. Do they hold up, or how do they compare? I guess. Um. So the second one still has uh, Chief and. I don't think Hooper is in it. I don't. I don't even remember. It's been so long since I've seen it. Um, it takes place a few years in the future. It's uh, not a bad movie, but I wouldn't say it's like the same blockbuster quality as. I figured. I figured as much. Yeah. And then Jaws three is in three D, right? Right, oh, and then boy. it just jumps the shark <laughs> um, if you have to. But um, yeah, because I think it goes like five or six, something Jesus. crazy. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So one one thing I did notice this time, out of all the other times I've watched it, I noticed the color yellow more for whatever reason, because everyone has the same yellow rafts in the ocean, like the beach scenes. There's it's always in a shot whenever the shark is interacting with the people. Oh really? <laughs> and, yeah, and it's like a weird dichotomy because it's that's for the first half of the movie, and then in the second half it's the yellow barrels. Oh and yeah, and they have this. Yeah, it's like they have this weird, um, like duality where they show safety, like because you're on a raft. Yeah. But then when everyone's running out of the water, you're the the most vulnerable. Like they're the people getting trashed and flipped over. And <laughs> if you guys remember, there's like the guy who steals the little kids' rafts. Yeah. He like flips them yeah, off yeah, and yeah. takes it. Yeah. And so it's like they have this weird duality, and then the barrels. It's like, oh, thank God we know where the shark is and when he's around, but also, holy shit, he's here. Yeah. That's really cool. It's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It, I was also surprised at how like, this is a weird comparison, but how Stephen King E this movie felt. Cause as oh, soon as I saw totally. like, that bloody, uh, it was the, it was a yellow raft that kind of washed ashore with like blood surrounding it and it was deflated and everything. And I immediately thought Georgie, I was like, Oh my God, that's uh looks just like a fucking yellow raincoat or, um, you know, the kids on the beach and getting slaughtered and shit, you know how it is. And it just seems right. like something like if this was set in on the coast of Maine, I don't know if Maine has, I'm sure Maine has a beach. It's a coastal <laughs> state. I, I forget. I said that, uh, but <laughs> if it took place in Maine and people were swimming and shit, and there was a shark, like I would totally think, Oh, Stephen King wrote this, but because it's not in Maine, I'm like, okay, maybe Stephen King did not write this. And he didn't, I'm guessing. Right. No, he <laughs> didn't. The way the thrills are in it, too, is very Stephen King. They're not very flashy. They're not jump scare type things. And even when they are, they're very subtle. So I think it lends it to Jaws as well. Like even when uh, Hooper takes the tooth out of the boat and then the face pops up. Oh, my God. Like it's yeah. it's such a jump scare. But if you watch, it's so slow. Like the body drifts mm-hmm. in so slow. But somehow it it still scares me. I just was not prepared for that. I thought I was, but I was not prepared. Since it's such a quotable movie, do you guys have any quotes that stood out to you guys? Quotes, maybe not, but moments for sure. Like one of my favorite moments that is like sticking out to me right now is when Chief is yelling at his kids to get out of the boat on the pier. And the mom's like, just let them play. They're not in the water. And then she looks at the book (laughs) and sees that the shark can break through the boat. She's like, get out of the water. (laughs) <laughs> that was really funny to me. Uh, and also, I like a big quote in my family for some reason is uh, like a doll's eyes. And I had no idea that this was that was from this movie. So now I can finally, you know, 
connect those dots, which is good. Oh, nice. Impressive. I feel stupid because like my like, okay, so my favorite scene in the movie doesn't have any doesn't have any words in it because he's underwater and the shark is fucking with him. So like (laughs) quotes that stood out to me are, ah, like, I don't know. (laughs) Don't ever trust Hooper with like your China or like a valuable item because he's dropped two things in this movie. He just oh, cannot right. hold on to anything. <laughs> you're right. You're right. That's funny. As soon as he dropped that spear, I was like, again, God. Oh my God. When 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 he swam down, I was like, if you go and try to get that damn pole and think that you are going to stand a chance <laughs> at the bottom of the fucking ocean with a pole in your hand against a shark, he makes the right move. He goes and hides. That's good. <laughs> I guess like something that always sticks out to me, I, and it's such a sentimental moment for such a thriller-based movie, is when uh, Chief and his youngest son are at the dinner table and they're mimicking each other, mm-hmm. like the way he's sitting at the table. Like that, there's those sequences that really balance out the movie to me. That is really good. Give us a kiss. Why? Because <laughs> I need it. Like small, like small moments like that, and um, even Chief's interaction with Hooper in the beginning. Right after that, when he comes over and he fills a pint glass full of wine. <laughs> yeah. He didn't let it breathe. <laughs> yeah. He was supposed to let it breathe. You know, something that I'm reminded of now is um, when the woman whose son was killed in the water mm-hmm. comes up. Mrs. Kittner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Comes up to the chief and it's like, like, I just heard that there was a lady that died last week. And you knew there was a shark out there and you kept the, the beaches open and now my son's dead and there's like nothing that you can do about it. And it's like, maybe not necessarily like what she said was uh, that like memorable or anything, but it was, it's certainly powerful. And it's like putting yourself into Brody's predicament where you have, I guess the mayor or who, whoever's the, that, the mayor, yeah. yeah, that swarmy guy. Um <laughs> Like saying, we can't close the beaches down. Like the the town will die, you know, like we need this money. People will just go other places. So we can't shut the beach down. But we need to shut the beach down because there's a a monster out there. And it's like, what the hell do you do? And in that scene, like the look on his face, I think, says a lot. Like, I don't know what the fuck to do. I don't, you got two <laughs> people breathing down your neck, you know like telling you you need to do one thing or the other and and Hooper and uh, the swarmy guy, he just wants to keep everybody safe, but he also wants to do what's best for the town and protect everybody and also not let the town suffer from having to close the beach on the 4th of July because, again, they act like that's going to be the worst thing ever. And I think a lot of the power from that, from Mrs. Kittner and her whole speech, to me, comes from the line after it, when the mayor says, don't worry about it. I actually wrote it down. Like, don't worry about it, Martin. She's wrong. And his response is, no, she's not. And it's, it's almost like that just shows the duality of it. Yeah. That, that he, he was like, I was trying to close the beaches. Like I knew this would happen. Mm-hmm. And at this point, what can you do? Cause you're still the person responsible at the end of the day. Exactly. And like, he's just caught between such a rock and a hard place the only people uh, uh, above him on the totem pole are saying don't close the beach. But so like his only real option is just to go out there and 
try to kill the damn thing. I just like how that there's the whole movie is a series of people who think they're experts and stuff. Yeah. Like like Brody thinks he's an expert in public safety. The mayor thinks he's an expert at keeping beaches open. And, you know, Quint is like the blue collar expert of sharks. Cooper is the white collar, you know, education system expert <laughs> on sharks. And it's just everyone's constantly in a battle where one person seems to know the right answer. One person thinks they do. And there's one person who just doesn't know anything in every scene. <laughs> that's that's a really good point. It's a great observation. I I struggle with, I guess, my interpretation of this, and maybe just because nowadays I've been so surrounded by it, it's just like how the people in power are so often more pro-money than pro-safety of the people that they are ruling i don't know like to me oh my god that is such a perfect like we're in such a perfect time i'm sorry to cut you off like that (laughs) is totally of the time okay keep going that's brilliant like like i watching chernobyl and just being surrounded by this kind of behavior all the time i just thought the mayor was being a dick and he was like no this is our money maker we gotta we gotta keep the beaches open no matter what happens who cares about this killer shark it was weird seeing that especially for a movie that was made in what was it 75 yeah I think there was a clear choice. I'm I'm not so sure that I agree with like, oh, he was stuck. I don't know. He like, oh, he he didn't know what to do because he had to keep the beaches open. I guess my point is like, I don't know if you would say like his boss, but somebody who could like overrule him is saying we're not closing these beaches. Right. So, yes, obviously the correct choice is close the beaches that we've seen what's in the water. Uh, but like, what can he do? Yeah, no, no, I got you. I think, yeah, I think I was more like, like, this is just more a conversation about the mayor and how much of a dick he is. And like, and when he, when he convinced that guy to go in the water, he's like, no one's going in the water, just go in the water. And it encourages everyone to go in the water. And then, you know, obviously, you know what happens, but yeah. And even when he's in the hospital, so like the chief's son is hospitalized with shock. And when he's all, the mayor's all in his tizzy. And he's like, you know, my kids were on that beach too. It's like, yeah, well, are your kids in the hospital right now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <exactly. mine> is. <laughs> It says a lot about Brody's character that he didn't go out there and like yell at the mayor or get like all pissed off. He was just like driven to action immediately. He's like, okay, I need you to sign this. We need to hire Quinn. Like, yeah now like this is what you need to do right now he didn't waste any time like going and punching him or like i told you we shut up you know there's not there's no need for any of that he's not that kind of character he is very focused and i like that about him a lot right i i feel like this movie could be like you know big city cop goes to a small town to fix a problem (laughs) and it's so it's so not that because of character developments like you just said it just otherwise it could have just been you know ah oh, I know the streets kind of like attitude. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is like super nuanced and and it, I think it operates as just a fun popcorn movie too. But I'm really glad that we're getting the opportunity. This was a wonderful idea, Joe. I'm really glad that we're getting <laughs> the opportunity to look into this a little bit deeper because I can already tell that there's a lot there. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, okay. Ooh, okay. So here's what we'll do. We'll just ask because. Uh, our take twos are now like 45 minutes long. Uh, so we're going to ask questions. Okay. Have you seen Bo Burnham's inside? I have not. Jordan, and I talked about this a little bit. We did. Uh, 
couple days ago, actually. Are um, you interested? I, I'm really kind of not. What the <laughs> fuck, Joe? So I was telling Jordan, like, I was never a Bo Burnham fan. And I had a friend of mine who was like a super, like in the YouTube days, was a big fan of his. I'm like, I just don't get it. Like straight face throughout 10 videos. It's just not my type of humor. But then I saw him in Promising Young Woman. And I'm like, oh my God, he's acting so well. And I heard good things about, did you direct eighth grade or? Yeah, eighth yeah. grade, yeah. Eighth grade, yeah. And I heard good things about that too. And I heard that he's a nice guy. And I'm trying really hard, but I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> I just don't know if he's funny. So, like I didn't even think, I didn't even think he was funny in um, Promising Young Woman. I just think he did good acting yeah no i gotcha i've not seen his other stand-up specials so i can't really compare inside to any of the other ones that exist nick can but i i understand that on inside is really not the core of it is not comedy if that makes sense like there are funny moments but i really think it's it's supposed to be much more than like just a comedy i think his specials always try to give you a little bit more than comedy it always kind of feels a little bit like existential or um nihilistic but this particular one you know shot completely in one room over the course of a year during a global pandemic is especially depressing and hard to deal with uh and the juxtaposition against that and then singing about a white woman's instagram i think <laughs> is like where he succeeds so well I can understand someone being like, okay, not for me. His humor is like, if you are just not on that wavelength, I guess that that could totally make sense. I don't hate you because of that. (laughs) (laughs) This is just kind of like in the back of my mind. And this might be an opportunity where Nick will actually hate you. Depending on how you answer, you'll either be on his side or my side. But how do you feel about the movie The Goonies? I love The Goonies. Thank you. Okay, thank you. They're just screaming at each other the whole time. I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this recently um, because he's like an anti-Goonies person. Smart guy. There's such like a cult following around it, which I can understand hating a movie just because the fans are annoying. Um, <laughs> but the, like, I, I get that. Yeah. It's like, stop, stop telling me to watch it. Now I'm never going to watch it out of spite. Like the Goonies is so emblematic of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Like just just kids being gone for eight hours <laughs> and um <laughs> and just every part about it i can relate to some did you ever discover some treasure we used to have a dump behind our house we'd bring stuff back from the dump does that count okay yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> did you have one of those like cool zip line system things that shoots out of your belt buckle <laughs> well we, no but we did have a zip line so uh, really we could yeah, and our house is like super tall in our backyard, and our backyard's super long. So by the end of it, you're going really fast, <laughs> and there's no bumper. So you either have to bail or hit a tree. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was a wild uh, zip line. Here you go, <laughs> 75 feet or whatever. Jeez, <laughs> like action park. <laughs> have you ever seen that? Have you ever? I haven't, have you ever but seen... I know someone who went to it. There's a documentary on it. It's like celebrating how awesome it is. Like I think it was called Class Action Park, which is funny. But um, <laughs> they're talking about how how awesome it is that there are no lifeguards on duty and and all these uh, rides are really dangerous and stuff like that. And then it's like, oh, and also people died. And I'm like, well, now I feel <laughs> awful about thinking this was really cool for an hour. <laughs> 
It was yeah. fun living without the rules until we found out people died. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But nobody died on y'all's zipline, right? If I if if somebody did, I feel like that's like uh, a really inappropriate question. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, my grandmother died. I w- <laughs> well, Granny should not have been. <laughs> Who let Grandma on the zipline to begin yes. with? Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know. We didn't have a lifeguard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know. There's just something about the Goonies. And at some point, I feel like I've been every one of those characters. Like at literally every single one. It's at the point now where we were. I was watching the Goonies and I said to my mom, I was like, oh my God, I just realized there were the Fratellis. Like this whole time, I thought we were the family. I realized that we're the Fratellis because it's me and my brother and my mom and my mom's boyfriend. And I'm like, oh my God, like, yeah, mom, you're the mom. And I'm the one with the toupee and the glasses who always thinks he's so smart. And my brother's like the big muscly guy. And I'm telling this to my mom. And then she goes, but who's Carrie? Who's my, who's my boyfriend? And I was like, oh, he's sloth. Oh my God. <laughs> and oh, I didn't think great. she remembered it and then I saw him like a week later and he was like really sloth <laughs> <laughs> see I love that movie it's a great time okay but right. can y'all not acknowledge that it seems almost like it's unscripted for these children because they're just sure screaming over each other and like it, I, I can't understand anything that they're saying and it's just oh my god i just it's, why are you telling these children to yell at each other i mean that's what it was like when i was a kid no it wasn't i was a child at one point 48 years ago <laughs> yes <laughs> pretty close 48 pretty close. are you telling me that you were a silent child that never spoke to his friends ever or let them speak we calmly spoke or either <laughs> we wrote each other letters that is utter bullshit but I picture your childhood like the uh, the peasants in the Holy Grail. Like, exactly. Talking about their constitutional democracy. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Oh my god. <laughs> we all take turns being in charge. <laughs> I feel like I can only watch that movie like once every like year and a half to two years. I think it's a great movie, but there are so many points where it just kind of drags. And I'm like, I I, like watching this on a regular basis would not be fun. So I got to like get my fill in every once in a while. No, I gotcha. I could just as easily like pull up my favorite parts on YouTube. True. Yeah. I'd be fine with that. Like the, I think that, I think just the thing that I could watch forever and ever would be the I guess he's like a knight or and he he gets his arms chopped off and his legs chopped off and he's just like it's just a flesh wound he's like <laughs> come back and fight me I oh my god that is so fucking funny yeah it's like that movie some like Mel Brooks movies like uh, Spaceballs I'm that way with like I have to be in a once a year mood I I just watched Spaceballs for the first time I don't know we, we talked about this on the podcast some other episode I don't ever listen to them. Um, but like that movie was, I was not expecting to like it. I was like, Oh, it's another movie of Jordan showing me that I'm just going to be like, no, I, I always tell him my, my honest opinion. And, uh, I was fully ready to be like, Jordan, why did you make me watch that movie? But I really liked it. I was really, I really enjoyed it. 
I was surprised I hadn't seen it, to be honest with you, as much as I like Star Wars. Are you also a Mel Brooks fan? Honestly, not not really. I think the stuff that I've seen, it's like I would have been a Mel Brooks fan like 30 years ago. Like that would have totally been my kind of humor back then. But now it's like it feels a little bit dated to me. How about you? Oh, I, I love Mel Brooks. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm an old man. Like I'm wearing old man glasses. <laughs> How are you able to pull off glasses that are bigger than the sun? Like those are some ginormous spectacles you got on there. Yeah, they're gigantic. Uh, people at work call my granny glasses. Do they help you see better? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times they make me see worse because I hit them anytime I touch my face. And I'm sure oh, you guys gotcha. can see I touch my face a lot, which was really good for 2020. <laughs> um, but like I go to touch my nose and I hit my glasses and I'm like immediately flailing <laughs> and they fall off 20 times a day. But fashion is fashion. They are awesome. <laughs> like, I, if I could pull off something like that, I totally would. I, uh, I was shopping for these when I was working night shift. So I bought them for the express reason. I was like, well, I only see three people. <laughs> like, I, I legitimately only see three people in my life because of the hours that I'm awake. So I'm like, if I look stupid and I'm working night shift, who cares? It's not going to be the total waste of money. I still need glasses. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but they kind of worked out. They're kind of part of the look now. Yeah, they look very cool. Okay, yeah, and uh, I have uh, one final question for you. Okay, are you offended by the word hipster? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just was curious. I just want to know how you feel about the word hipster. I'm not saying anything. I just wanted to know how you felt about the word hipster. It's like asking OJ what his opinion is on isotoners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh that was an old man joke <laughs> yeah i guess that just proves the hipster point doesn't it but I'm <laughs> <laughs> quoting a celebrity murder trial from the 90s, early yeah. 90s expecting that jordan and i know what isotoners are who's oj i don't know who oj is <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome to I May Get In Trouble For This Podcast. It's your boy, T. Cook. And it's Brianna Monet. Tune in every week for Trouble Tuesdays. Where we cover current events, controversial takes, and unpopular opinions. You know, things that may get us in trouble. You don't want to miss this. Take three. Hey, everybody. (laughs) I don't know what else to do or to say. We're in take three now. Uh, Joe is here, and so is Jordan, and so am I, and I'm not under the blanket, so if I sound weird, that's why, and I'm also eating pizza. How are you guys doing? Not I'm doing great. Pizza. Yeah. Yeah, not eating pizza. <laughs> so not as great. Correct. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but what I really want to hear about are some box office statistics. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I appreciate that. That makes me happy. Too bad this is the one time that I forgot to do that. No Thanks way. For bringing it up. No, you're, I'm just you're, you, you, I was going to say there's no way. <laughs> I would never. You had me for a second too. Damn. Oh, it's very often like my favorite thing to research. Even though I, I gotta tell you, nobody probably gives a shit about this. Everybody that says they do is saying it to coddle me. No, I, I listen. <laughs> I, I would very much tell you. 
Um, I'll tell you the things I want you to change about the podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that will not be on the list. Is Jordan at the top of the list? I'd believe Whoa. it. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> That's fair. He's at the top of mine. Top of the <laughs> top of the list is uh, I don't want any more audio, only video. I want all of every take to be charades. <laughs> we just mime. Oh, God. <laughs> just mime with no audio. Oh, my God. To come up here, I would totally do that. If we could just come up here and not speak and just stare at the camera for an hour, I would do that with no audio. And subtitles. Oh, no <laughs> subtitles. If you can't hear, sorry, this is not the podcast for you. I don't know what to tell you. Well, no. If you can't see, this is not the podcast yeah. for you because there's no audio. So we're we're not for deaf or blind people. I really am sorry. We'll just have a transcript so they'll think that like our voices or your voices are just like the text to speech lady. Okay. Like Siri or whatever. So you write the transcript, Joe. That'll be your <laughs> job. Okay. And we won't have to do much editing because there will be no cuts because we won't have to say or do anything. I like this. Oh no, I think it should look interesting. I think you guys do a horror movie. I think like someone should be sneaking up slowly behind you in the background. Like, like you should really play with the medium, you know? Like the guy that's in the background of Jordan's apartment right now. Oh lord. That's just a friend. He shows up sometimes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man. Right. There have been times uh where I've actively tried to scare Jordan by like being like, oh my god, there's somebody behind you. I don't think he ever falls for it. But if someone ever did that to me, I think that's like probably like the one of the scariest things I could possibly think of. Like being on camera with someone and then them being like, look, you need to run out of the room. There is someone behind you. Wow. Like, isn't that a terrifying scenario? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's a like a a horror movie some somewhere. What did you have? You guys ever seen Hush? Oh fuck yeah, oh, Hush. Maybe. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Isn't there isn't there a part where she's on a video call and someone's like, "Who's behind you?" Totally. Yes. Yes. Oh, I really. Okay. So it's not a popular opinion apparently because it's offensive that uh, the main character in that movie is not actually a deaf person. I fucking love that movie. <laughs> I love I that. Really movie. do. See, yes. it's one of the few new horror movies that I've like will rewatch. Totally. Uh, yeah, like you should cast deaf people. Like uh, A Quiet Place, that's great that the little girl in there is actually a deaf person or a, a hearing disabled. I don't know. How do you – Hearing impaired. Is deaf yeah. okay? Yeah. Hearing impaired, yes. Okay. Yeah, deaf's, deaf's fine. Okay. Deaf's fine if you're deaf. I don't know if she has some hearing. Okay, so so there's definitely a reason why people say Jaws was like the first real summer blockbuster ushered in that era – of Hollywood. Um, it premiered on June 20th, 1975, and it had a $1.8 million marketing budget alone, right? At, which is like astronomical for a film in 1975. A whopping 700000 of that was actually spent on television advertising. Now, this film also had an astonishing amount of tie-in merchandise, Honestly, it's like something comparable to what movies released today receive. Uh, there was a 
soundtrack album, T-shirts, tumblers, a making of book, a repackaging of the book the movie was based on, shark costumes, beach towels, toy sharks, hobby kits, games, posters, shark tooth necklaces, sleepwear, iron-on transfers, water pistols, blankets, like tons of shit, right? And the original release of this film was slated to be up to like 900 theaters. That was the plan. That was like a whole lot back then. It's not a whole lot now, but that was a whole lot back then, like a whole lot. But Lou Wasserman, who was a chairman at Universal, was like, at the time, he wanted the total number of theaters that it was going to be released in to be cut down. And it's actually for an interesting reason. I think you guys will think this is fascinating. He said, I want this picture to run all summer long. I don't want people in Palm Springs to see the picture in Palm Springs. I want them to have to get in their cars and drive to see it in Hollywood. Which by today's logic seems like the way to get people to not see your film. But apparently, this is something I learned, I did not know this. At the time, wider releases were largely associated with films that weren't expected to be good. Like grindhouse films are even something that this source listed. That way... As many people would see the film as possible before the bad word of mouth would spread so that they would make as much money as possible before, you know, it tanked. Still, the film opened in 464 North American screens on, like I said, on June 20th, 1975. That's still an outrageous amount of theaters. You mix that with an advertising push on TV that's unprecedented, and you get more people hearing and having access to this film that had ever really been the case before. So once this movie opened with a record $7 million weekend and a record $21 million first 10 days, it made much more sense to the studio to rapidly expand the theater count. By late July, the film was in 700 theaters, and by mid-August, it was in over 950. It became the first film to earn $100 million at the U.S. box office in just 59 days, and in 78 days, replaced The Godfather, which uh, had made $86 million as the highest-grossing film at the North American box office of all time. Then, that December, it started playing overseas in the foreign markets, where it was able to capitalize on it being summer in the Southern Hemisphere. So it broke records in a ton of other countries like Japan, Singapore, New Zealand, like a bunch of places where, you know, it's beach time. And on January 11th of 1976, it became the highest grossing film worldwide with 132 million, also beating The Godfather. And it stayed at the top of that pack uh, till this movie that no one's ever heard of. Can anybody guess what it's called? Uh, Star Wars? Yeah. Two years later, oh, yeah. Star Wars came out. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> Google it. That's all I can, can you, say. Can you explain <laughs> from start to finish what Star Wars is to me? I could, but but you don't want me to. So Drew Barrymore's brother finds this alien. <laughs> and <laughs> Oh my goodness. That's a movie I've wanted to do on this podcast for a long time. E.T., yeah. E.T., yeah. E.T., the extraterrestrial. You guys ever see those memes where it's like, I'm going to tell my kids this was that? That sounded like what that was. Yeah. Like, I'm going to tell my kids this was Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I haven't seen E.T. in a long time. We should do that sometime. Okay, so 
through all of its releases, this is pretty impressive. Domestically, it made $260 million, $260 million, $7 million. Uh, internationally, it made $210 million. So that's worldwide. That's like $471 million worldwide for a film that was released almost 50 years ago. Um, is that in that you know quarter billion dollar, is that just in the first box office release? So what I the, the numbers that I gave you at the end were all of its releases. So it's been released a couple of times. Uh, they've done they did a few more releases in the late 70s and then it got released for its 40th year anniversary. Still super impressive, though. I understand why people say that that was, like, the first big blockbuster. Because, like, the thing it beat out, like, Godfather, that's not, like, a four-quadrant film. I don't know if you guys know what that is, uh, but a four-quadrant film is a film that appeals to, like, men and women and boys and girls. They're still operating within the binary, but that's what they they mean. (laughs) Someday, maybe that'll change. An all-quadrant film. That's what we can call it. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. The ads... That would run in the Hollywood Reporter, I believe. Oh, he's fitting in well, Googling stuff while we're recording. That's perfect. That's exactly what we do. (laughs) I I type like an old lady, like if I don't talk it out loud. But apparently there were these ads. I'm not sure where they were released. I'm pretty sure it was like the Hollywood Reporter or something. Um, And Steven Spielberg, I'm going to send you guys a picture of it um, later, but... They would take out these ads congratulating each other when they would break their box office records. Yes. Have you guys seen these? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. They still do and it. It's like, oh, do they really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Marvel oh, just I didn't did know it, still- right? For who did they beat out? So was it Titanic or something? It, yeah. Uh, well, no, Avatar. But Avatar. James oh, right, Cameron right. congratulated Marvel, uh, but then I don't know if then Marvel then turned around and was like, "Hey, actually, sorry, we're congratulating you now because it Avatar went back like they're." both so close now but yeah they've done i've seen the ones for like star wars and yeah that's awesome and i i guess this was the first one it's r2d2 like fishing off the coast and the fish that he's catching is the jaws from the movie poster i love that i love that and it says uh dear george last week star wars moved ahead of jaws in domestic film rentals your hyperspace performance package really did the trick. Congratulations to the Cantina crowd and all the forces of your imagination that made quote Star Wars so worthy of the throne. Wear it well, your pal Steven Steven Spielberg. Aww. They're like really good friends, so that makes me happy. He was able, to, and that's probably why it started because uh, you know two filmmakers that didn't know each other might not do something like that, and now it's tradition. So I love that. I'm going to, um, or one of us needs to try to find those pictures and we'll link those if anybody's curious to see them. Cause they're awesome. Yeah. The star Wars thing seems to be really popular. I need to jump on that wagon cause I've not, <laughs> not heard of that, but clearly it's, it's a big deal. Um, a couple things I have sort of a, like a section that's kind of like, you know, did you know, or like behind the scenes of jaws, And the one thing that I wanted to mention was there was a lot of things that just seemed to have gone differently than planned, but ended up really helping this movie a lot. One of which being it was originally supposed to be a Christmas release, but because of like production difficulties and stuff, it ended up being a summer release. And I wonder if that had, if if it did originally release in Christmas, if that had a, would have any impact on 
its success or anything like that. And I know with, you know, the, I'm sure we'll go over this later, but the difficulties with the animatronics and stuff, it's just, it seems to be a lot of, and I know the, the directors swapped places. There was a lot of like exchanging of directors with this movie as well. So it just seemed to be like everything just happened at the right place in the right time. I definitely think that it would have affected the box office to come out at Christmas time while it is really kind of making you afraid to go to the beach People still go to the beach, you know, and people still want to see movies about beachy things and people still want to see like summer fun and stuff like that. So I think that's why it totally hit the jackpot coming out in the summer, in the heart of summer, and then being able to turn around and release it overseas in the heart of so many other people's summers. I just, I love that. And the fact that that was not originally supposed to happen is fucking nuts. Like the fact that you said, like, there's all these production problems that go like a hundred days over, and and that leads to the absolute perfect storm, like the best possible release date for this movie. So it had the whole summer to scare the shit out of people. <laughs> I love this movie. God damn it, I love this movie. Okay, oh, keep so going. Glad. Yeah, I thought I thought it was so. Um interesting that the entire crux of the movie is july 4th like when you watch it the movie at least the entire summer hinges on july 4th weekend because that's where like the tourist dollars really come in so it's weird that they didn't even think about that however i have read the book before i can't find my copy of it but i do remember a good amount and i brought up the wikipedia page about it and it's funny because what I remember from the book mainly was how much they focused on the town of Amity. The book is way more, and you can kind of tell with the movie as well, that there is so much in the town and so little on the boat. Uh, the book is the same way. Like there's so much happening in the town. One very interesting thing is when they call Hooper, Richard Dreyfuss's character, Matt Hooper, Brody's wife actually has an ongoing affair with him throughout the book. Yeah. No way. Wow. No way. So, yeah. So beyond the, the movie where there's a huge conflict kind of between Quint and Hooper on this, you know, working class, upper class attitude towards sharks. In the book, there's also Brody is in a constant kind of battle. He has hints that this is happening. He has a feeling that they're meeting up because, if I remember right, uh, Brody's wife uh, knew Matt Hooper's older brother. Because he's supposed to be like a just out of college kid. He's supposed to be like a doctoral age. And I think the brother is a little bit obviously older. So there's an ongoing affair, which is like pretty central to the book. Wow. It's written from um, third person perspective, but they follow around Brody's wife a lot. Interesting. And there's also a good amount um, dealt more to his deputy, you know, the dopey deputy that's in the movie. Yeah. He does a lot more research into why the mayor is so, like, focused on the summer. And there's a whole plot line based off of the mayor's ties to the mob. And the mob is kind of, like, pulling the strings for the mayor. Whoa. Like, 
because they because in the book they own all this property in Amity, so they're not going to get any summer rental dollars if the town is Shark City. <laughs> um, so that's why they're pulling for him to keep the beaches open. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. there's like the town of Jaws is so much of Jaws the book is so much bigger than yeah. it is. Like when you watch the movie, it's kind of like, oh yeah, beach wow. town. Wow. Okay, so I gotta make the make the suggestion and I didn't think I would ever say something like this because it feels like one of those movies that as I will bring up later has been ripped off several several times this story needs like a mini series how would you guys feel about like maybe like a six part mini series being released that actually follows like the book it still has like the the shark and we can make it actually look just as real as it as any shark i would love that and for them to be able to tell that story because that's such a rich story i don't want to make like a remake of jaws and then that'd be always compared to it but like a mini series that can really expound upon those storylines i would love that that's fascinating to me I would almost like it if it was almost more front-loaded. Like, if it were to start somewhere like when Brody is still a New York City police officer. Oh. And then, like, because like, there is a whole thing about his wife. I feel really bad just calling him his wife because she does have a first name. I'm just <laughs> – I haven't read the book in a while. Elaine? <laughs> Ellen. Ellen. Okay. Uh, Ellen Brody. Um, part of her reason for an affair and everything is she misses the city life. And if you remember, there's, like, hints of that. Why I love Jaws as an adaptation so much is there's so many hints to the book, but it has its own plot. Like there's things that – like the little kid's name who gets eaten off the raft, like his name is exactly the same. Uh, Chrissy, the first girl who gets eaten. Like there's like storylines that are direct, which I like. That's good. But where it diverges, like Steven Spielberg's just like giving it like a little kiss. Like just like, no, here's, here's a little nugget. One of my favorite things once I read the book was, if you remember the scene when Hooper comes over to the Brody's house and he brings bottles of wine and they're talking about sharks. And yeah. Then they, they decide to get drunk and go and cut the shark open. There's a whole point where Brody's wife is like, she's got her head in her hands and she's like, uh, Martin tells me you're into sharks. And he's like, oh, I've never heard it put that way. And they're kind of like flirty. Like after reading the book, when you watch that scene – Oh, it gives a new context. That's cool. Yeah, it's like, oh, this isn't just casual talk blunders. Like, this is like, this has a flirty context. Wow. So there's like little Easter eggy kind of things in there for people who actually read the book. Mm-hmm. Man, I want a miniseries now. Like that, I have committed to that idea now. Somebody needs to do that. We're three guys. We could get on a boat. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. My God. Oh, my God. Who would be who would be Quint? Who would be Hooper? And who would be um? Oh my God, Brody. Chief Brody, Brody, the star of the movie. But okay, so this is cool because I'm gonna have to tag us all in a thumbnail, and I gotta tag us each. So pick who you guys would be. I, I gotta hear some impressions. If oh, if I can pick. God. Yeah. <laughs> not not necessarily impressions. I want to hear like. How would you do a Brody, a Hooper, or a Quint? If I were playing Hooper, I would be more this way, or I would. Uh, if I were Quint, I would live. 
I would survive that thing. To both of y'all's detriment, though, I would I would throw you guys to the shark to uh to get the fuck he out would, of there. Too. You laugh, Joe. He totally would. <laughs> I, I would say that my favorite is Hooper. I feel like I said that in, in take two. Mine too. Like I, I'm most drawn to Hooper. I can imagine probably a lot of people are. And it, and that totally makes sense that they wouldn't include that storyline because it kind of makes me like that version of Hooper less if he's you know participating in an affair with this guy's wife. Right. Um, so that makes sense why they wouldn't have included it. Who do you want to be, Joe? What can you do? Uh, how would you do whatever you're talking about? I, f- I feel like there's so, all three of them are such substantial like foundations in cinema. Totally. Even just of the time. Like the way Brody overreacts, it's like exactly between the three stooges and how people overreact in movies now. <laughs> like his like he just has like a pop-up anxious attitude. That didn't exist for a very long time in cinema. I feel like it was like maybe like early 70s to mid 80s. And then the attitude towards that kind of character, like the neurotic character changed. That's really um, interesting. So I, so I think I could pull that off. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I'm, neuro- I'm neurotic, but I'm not afraid of the ocean. I'd really have to sell that part. You could do it. You get get uh, chased around by a shark. I bet you'd be afraid of it. Because sharks are scarier than bears. Um, All right, so so you can be Brody and you can be Hoover because you like Cooper, and I will be Quint because like the cocky like sea captain guy. That's, that's all. Like I love. If, that. if it were yeah, if it were up to me, Nick, you would totally be like like the greasy old sailor who's been around the block a few times and like knows what he's doing. Thank you. I really love the idea of being like the the academic and like the student and the one who's, you know, going out there for research and science studies and stuff. Yeah, I and yeah, and you make a great Brody. You you I feel like you're the most level-headed of the three of us and possibly like <laughs> I don't know, you you'd know what to do going into it and can I just ask a question? So, like your your attributes that made you like Hooper were like you're the academic, and <laughs> and Joe is like the most level headed of us, and I'm the yeah. greasy old guy that's been around the block a few times. Yes, you heard me correctly. I'm eight months older than you. <laughs> Jordan's like I'm smart. Joe is level headed. Nick, you watched. 200 of your friends die in the, in the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. <laughs> There's, where's the lie? There's, it's, it's perfect. I, I see nothing wrong with this. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh my God. Jordan, you have a, you have a young, feisty attitude. Joe, you're neurotic. <laughs> Nick, alcoholism. Yes. Yes. You you just keep like this is correct. Just keep you, proving you, his point. You've nailed it. <laughs> okay, I'm going So we have central casting is done, right? Yes, yes. That's all we need. <laughs> All right, somebody say something, like, factual. <laughs> so a couple other things from the book. Some interesting death changes. Hooper 
does die via the shark. Really? Brody is the Yeah, Brody is the only survivor in the book, which also provides such an interesting dynamic to the affair. Like, could you imagine coming back from a boat trip that you didn't even want to go on, that you thought should have been prevented, and you just watched some guy from the town you're supposed to protect die, and also you assume, because I'm pretty sure Hooper dies in the same, you know, the scene where he gets away, like when he goes in the water. So your wife's lover dies, and some (laughs) guy from the town you're supposed to protect dies, and you just have to float back to shore. Oh my god. And like, they, they sure act like there are no other sharks. Like, sharks have babies. I, that's probably what some of the sequels are about. But like, they're just flipping back to shore, like happy. Okay, so this this movie clearly realized that they had Richard Dreyfus and were like, oh, we have to change the his whole story. And we have to just make him the most likable character. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird that, like, they got rid of his affair and he lives? I think they had to, in my non-filmmaker opinion, I think it would be too much if you're looking at it from the book because there is a very large dynamic on the boat between Brody and Hooper just in their differences of attitudes. Like, there's kind of a, not a love triangle, but there's just a conflict triangle between the three of them. Like, Brody is trying to keep Quint on track. Quint is mad at Hooper for being rich. Hooper's mad at both people. Like, everyone's, like, kind of has something on the other one and a weakness. It's not the love boat. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, Also, the the shark doesn't explode. What happens to it? He just kind of dies from all of his wounds because there's... The boat still gets destroyed and slowly sinks. But during that time, like, Quint shoots it. He also gets harpooned. And uh, Quint, actually, the way he dies is he harpoons the shark and he gets entangled in the ropes on the harpoon and the shark brings him underwater and kills him that way. Ooh. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, so an interesting thing about Quint, who is one of my like all-time favorite movie characters. Are you guys familiar with John Milius? I've heard that name before. What? Who is that? Uh, so John Milius was a writer. He wrote uh, – do you remember Red Dawn – yeah, yeah. So he wrote Red Dawn. He is a like a crazy dude. Really? Um there's a documentary about him. I yeah, I'm I'm googling him now just to see what the documentary is called. Boop 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 do I don't know what it's called. I love how he puts this like on hold with music. Like do 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 just wait. It's great. Um but he was in the same what was it at USC where Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and all those guys met yeah. um, that film program? He was involved in it, but he did the the horror monologue from Apocalypse Now. He wrote that. Oh wow! He helped George. He helped George Lucas rewrite parts of his first draft of Star Wars. Damn. So small aside, he forced uh, Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas. In Apocalypse Now, right? I don't know. Anyway, he forced him to read all of his narration lines with a loaded gun in his hand because he wanted him to be afraid. But no one knew that he was... Like, he just pulled a gun off of his side and was like, hold that, it's loaded. Read your lines. Oh, my God. Um, So he's like a crazy dude. Um, (laughs) But Steven Spielberg had like a one-paragraph, like, blurb. Because the Indianapolis wasn't a part of the book. 
and especially that oh, okay. whole monologue about waiting in the water. And I think he changed the historical storyline a little bit of mm -hmm. that. Um, so he brought it to John Melius and was like, hey, man, can you help me kind of punch this up? He basically recited a monologue over the phone to Steven Spielberg. They wrote it down, and Robert Shaw, the actor who plays Quint, was like, this is amazing, but I can't do this. Like, I can't. There's no way I can record this. So it's kind of like John Melius gave him 10 pages. Robert Shaw cut it down to what we see now. Um, and if I remember the story correctly, Robert Shaw was a drinker. <laughs> and <laughs> they're like, they were on the boat or on the set. And Steven Spielberg's like, well, they were constantly watching Robert Shaw to make sure he wasn't unfilmable. Oh, wow. Um, and John Melius was just like secretly getting him drunk. Like he's like, no, he needs to be oh my God. actually inebriated to read these <laughs> lines. And that's the performance we got. Wow. That is so fascinating. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a like an amazing thing. that John, Mel John Melius is a gem of American cinema. <laughs> That is too funny. Um, just that he could write things like off the cuff, just be like, boom, this is what he's talking about. Yeah. Wow. Like I knew – I, like I definitely had heard that name and I, it makes sense why. But like I knew none of that. That's fascinating. Yeah. There's the documentary about him. I love that. Yeah. Please, please share the documentary. If you can't find it now, it's no big deal. It's, it's just called Melius. His last name um, is the okay, name of the documentary. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, one thing I will say, so there is a huge parallel with the way uh, Quint dies to Captain Ahab and Moby Dick uh, in the book. Oh, cool. Yeah, he, they die in the same way. And I think that – I think a lot of people on a casual viewing of Jaws I – I feel like I sound like a frat bro, like a casual viewing of this movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, like a casual viewing of Jaws doesn't really allow yourself to see – the struggle and we talked about it a little bit in take two as well like how he's fighting off brody to stay on the water to get the shark yeah that storyline of quint is very much more rooted in the metaphor of captain ahab um so it's very it's a it's an interesting way to have people peel off like the rich guy with his rich technology still kills him this <laughs> captain ahab figure who's spent his life as a shark hunter dies in a stupid task or a frivolous, a frivolous, uh, goal, which is to get the shark. That is fascinating. I like that. Am I going to read this book? That never fucking happens. It's J Jordan. It's a short book. It's like, like I, it's a paperback about this big or yeah, about this big and this mm -hmm. thin. Oh my God. It's, really? It's, it's not, like, it's not that big of a book. How though? It just seems like there's so much more that is packed into this book. It seems like it should be much bigger. According but... to Wikipedia, it's 278 pages, but I remember my copy being very small and thin. So interesting. And I never do that. Like if I watch a movie first, there's no way that I'm going back to the book, but this one might be the exception. That's interesting. Um, very cool. Uh, well, if you're finished with that, then I can, I can go next Joe. Um, I'm a little embarrassed here. I think I, misunderstood the assignment because all of my research involves like um like orthodontics and shit but uh, i can bring up some of what i uh found apparently ortho means like straight or correct um and daunt means tooth so it's like it's sort of both of those things together is like straightening out teeth which is interesting 
That's um, fascinating. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. I'm really proud of that bit. Thank you for staying and laughing for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I went down a really interesting rabbit hole um, that may or may not be uh, related to this movie at all. But uh, I go on Reddit a lot to research movies because I think that a lot of people have some really interesting discussion and analysis on the movies that we cover. And someone, someone somewhere brought up in a comment that like, Oh yeah, Spielberg really played along with that. Um, that like left and right framing thing that people do. And I kind of like looked into that a little bit. And I think basically what I found is that the way that a shot is composed has such an immense effect on tone and how we perceive a specific scene. And I think this matters because of the way that we like naturally digest things. We, we read things from left to right. Um, left to right indicates the progression of time, at least in, uh, in like um, our part of the world, I guess. Uh, and video games, I specifically like the 2D ones, I think you're, you're moving from left to right. And I think that progression kind of simulates like normality and progress. And I think a lot of, filmmakers even subconsciously kind of use this movement from left to right to show that something is being normal and they do the opposite to show that something is maybe off or a little bit um, not right or, or evil or something. And they actually did a study in the early 2010s that uh, they showed two audiences a short film. One of the short films was uh, several instances or actors that were moving in a frame from left to right. And then they showed the other audience the same film, but just flipped backwards and unsurprisingly, the group that saw the characters that were moving from left to right regarded the movie as like a positive or an uplifting kind of movie, whereas the other group used words like disturbing or creepy. And this goes a step further when we're able to distinguish between uh, a good and a bad side of the frame. Um, there's a video that I found that really explains this a lot better, uh, but it, it kind of took it that step further and explained how the um, the left side of the frame is is typically perceived as like maybe the bad side and the right is sort of like the good side. And it brought up some uh, movie examples. The one that stood out to me was the one in Lord of the Rings where Gollum is talking to himself or talking to Schmeagol. And, um, you know, it, it really distinguishes on both sides of the screen, whether or not it switches from, you know, one to the other, I forget which one's the good one and bad one. Um, but it, it kind of shows it's a great example of that. Um, and it really like this practice sort of really helps to establish different emotions in the scene. You don't and remember if Schmeagol or if Schmeagol or Gollum is bad. I think Gollum's the Kimmy's going to be Schmeagol's mad at you. One. I've seen those movies once. <laughs> uh, cut me some slack. No, I'm just kidding. I don't either. I'd imagine Gollum's probably the bad one. It sounds bad. Wait, Joe, wait, which was... one's the bad one? Wait a minute. There was two Gollums in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> can we plug it so did i watch a different movie <laughs> possibly <laughs> i don't know if you're being serious or, or not i i am being serious with he's two? like he's like talks to himself yeah like, it was he has like two personalities oh the voice yeah oh yeah, right yeah, yeah did they go by different names yeah yeah i think Gollum and smeagol right oh my god am i like this is a I hub of misinformation so see, it's okay I, if it's wrong I've I've read 48 pages of The Two Towers and I've read half of The Hobbit and I've seen like all the movies once. But I thought 
because Gollum is like a type of monster. Right. It's like a it's like a Jewish folklore. Yeah, monster, Gollum's right? probably so, the bad one. So I would assume. I think his real name was Smeagol, and he became a golem when he found the ring and became obsessed with the ring, if I remember right. that right. So I think Smeagol was his better persona, and he was so, taken over by the golem persona, if that's what you're meaning. And yes. so your argument was that like Smeagol's on the left, is, is yeah, portrayed so on the left, and Gollum's on the right. In terms of it. this discussion, it was shot in a way that when – the bad one was talking, he was on a specific side of the frame, and when the good one was talking, he was on the other one. That is just one of the several examples that I saw in this film. Now, it's it's a little bit confusing about the, the post that I originally saw. I wasn't sure if he was trying to say that Spielberg practiced this, where he used like the good and bad side, or if he did the opposite to kind of put us on edge and maybe think that like something that might be safe shows up on the dangerous side or vice versa. But uh, kind of learning this and watching, it was almost distracting because any other further research that I did, I was watching videos or like video clips of the movie and like trying to see like what was happening on the right and left side. Um, it seemed like it was sort of a mix of both. I can't really say if Spielberg was doing one or the other, but um, it is an interesting thing that I learned and I figured like it's something that I'm going to pay attention to watching movies moving forward. So I figured I'd share that with you if that was not something that was already clear so yeah there's also um uh, this i think i remember um when it comes to like movement in the the frame if they're going from the the left to the right and they're going up or going down in the film those are called easy ups and easy downs and those are a lot of times to show like progress and that, that that person is doing good um and and succeeding and doing bad things but if they're moving backwards within the frame from the right to the left up or down those are called hard ups and hard downs and that's you know to show that they're doing bad it's like the opposite so like that's kind of what i was thinking you were talking about at first <laughs> but that makes more that makes a lot of sense as well yeah there you go. So you get a film degree while listening to this podcast for free. <laughs> Pay us. <laughs> yeah. That's about as much good as a film degree will do you. <laughs> I will say with the framing, there is that turning point on the boat when they turn around, like when the boat, when Jaws does like the headbutt in the middle of the night. Remember the next morning, Quint tells Brody, he's like, all right, chief, we're turning around. But he starts blowing the motor like he just by over revs it. There is a turning point in the way it's shot between the part before that and the part after that in where they place Quint in the shot. I don't remember if it's specifically left or right, but there is a shift in the way that the characters are framed after that point. And nice. whether that's a statement on, you know, that they all had this turning point with Quint's monologue and then the shark attack in the middle of the night, or if there's if it's just a framing thing, uh, just a cinematic turn or if it's an actual plot reason why it does that gotcha 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 that's interesting does anybody have anything on like how like bruce didn't work and stuff yeah the shark never worked and they if i remember right they named it after uh the lawyer for the film yeah yeah because it cost them so much money yeah yeah, yeah obviously the shark didn't work it sank it took a long time to fix it. And what I thought was really neat was one of the ways that they got around having to show it a lot, because apparently in the book, or at least in the original script, the shark was going to be shown a lot. The 
yellow canisters that would track the shark were utilized and they didn't really have to show the shark. You can show where the shark is without actually having to see Bruce in the water, which I thought was fascinating. Like what a clever way to get around that. And that didn't even seem like a workaround. That just seemed like it would be a natural part of a the... perfect. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Like it, it, that's just how you would track a shark. <laughs> there are certain times where the shark in this movie works really well and there are times where the shark in this movie does not work very well. However, I think the things that work the best are the point of view shots with the shark. The fact that you can rely just on that score. Oh, God, what is it called? Oh, I'm going to have to Google something really quick. Hold on. I could say one thing real quick. Um, I remember when Paranormal Activity came out, because that was kind of a a big thriller of our generation, I guess. Um, Absolutely. I remember seeing a quote. It might not even be real. <laughs> it was like the, it was 2007. All right. The internet was a weird place. Um, but I remember the director of Paranormal Activity saying people went to see Jaws and were afraid to go in the ocean. People saw the Blair Witch Project and were afraid to go camping. I wanted to make people afraid of their own house. And those three movies really do have um, the same, you don't see the villain kind of thing, or very rarely, or you have glimpses only, which in the cases of ghosts, witches, and wild animals yeah. is the scariest thing. Kind of like the guy behind Jordan. It's <laughs> very funny. It's, Damn it. <laughs> it's, it's not seeing a full person. It's, you know, a hint of a shadow. That's the scariest yeah. part. Yeah. It's that tension. And the thing that I was trying to look up, I was trying to remember the word. I didn't want to get it wrong. It's called a leap motif. It's a short recurring musical phrase or just like basically notes in, in music. Uh, Something that's and it's associated. The... Yeah. And it's associated with, with a particular person, place, or idea. So the first time that we ever – uh, well, it opens the film, so we open the film as, you know, the shark's POV. Uh, we start to associate that sound with the shark. So when that sound comes up later in the film and you don't necessarily have to be seeing the shark, like all we need to know is that it's a shark and we know what sharks can do. Our minds can fill in the blanks. So I really love this. And I learned that word leap motif today and I was like, well, I like that a lot. I'm going to use that more, but then I forgot it and I had to re-Google it. So <laughs> there we are. Okay, so this film was actually nominated for four Oscars, including Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Picture. And it won all but Best Picture, which it lost to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Which, I didn't know this, but I didn't know Michael Douglas was a producer of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I saw that today as well. Yeah. He owned the uh, the rights to it. Oh, shit, it, really? So Michael Douglas, um, if I – all right, this is really going out on a limb on my memory. Michael Douglas was roommates with Danny DeVito in New York. Danny DeVito was in the stage play of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I guess part of that whole generation of actors, Jack Nicholson, that whole yeah. area, and method actors in New York um, – he was well aware of it, and he wanted to buy the rights to the movie. So Michael Douglas had to convince his father, Kirk Douglas, to buy the rights. 
like, hey, dad, you should really buy this, the rights to this uh, stage play. Um, and he was like, yeah, but Kirk Douglas was like, yeah, but I, you know, I really don't think I'm up to be playing this movie. He's like, no, dad, I'm going to be playing <laughs> R.P. McMurphy. And he, he had to convince his dad, who is Kirk Douglas, that he was like, no, I think I can handle this movie. Um, and then by the time he got into producing it, he realized he wasn't the right fit. But yeah, it's there's this whole wild intertwining. Wow. That is fascinating. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's really that's cool. Awesome. All right, so obviously we know what became of composer John Williams, but film editor Verna Fields' story is also quite interesting. She worked as a film and sound editor from the mid-50s to the mid-70s, and she developed working relationships with successful directors like Peter Bogdanovich, uh, George Lucas, and Steven Spielberg. It was with these directors that she found like her mainstream success. Uh, she edited movies like What's Up Doc, American Graffiti, and obviously Jaws, which that's the one she won the Oscar for. Uh, she earned the nickname of their Mother Cutter. I liked that. Because, uh, like, cutting, because that's how film used to be. Like, the reason why you call cutting is, like, film used to be spliced. Okay, that's a long story. Uh, she was nominated for a BAFTA and two Oscars, obviously winning one of the Oscars. Uh, she also won the American Cinema Editors Award for Best Edited Feature for Jaws. That award is called the Eddie, which I like a lot. Um <laughs> But what is most interesting about her is that at the same year that Jaws was released, uh, she became so um, well known and respected that she actually was made vice president uh, for feature production at Universal. And this like totally helped set a standard for women in higher ups in Hollywood moving forward. And she was there for, I think, until 82 when she passed away. So she was there for the rest of her life. She didn't have a ginormous film editing career uh, because the, her last edited film is Jaws. Because right after that, she became an executive. They were like, we're pulling you up. And I thought that was really awesome. I mean, to in the 70s, to have somebody like an editor... Uh, which there were female editors at the time, but like to be pulled up into being an executive of a movie studio, that's awesome. That's a huge deal. And that made me really happy to hear that it was, it had a lot to do not only with uh, her talent as an editor, but her relationships that she had built with so many of the filmmakers. So, yeah, I think that, I mean, I, this is a little bit broader statement than Jaws. Um, but like women are definitely the unsung heroes of the film industry like the silent era and early film, like most women were, most directors were women, if I remember right. And editors, like editing, as you guys know, and I'm sure as a lot of your listeners know, editing makes a movie. And so many great films that have great editing were edited by women. So it's kind of funny to me that it's like, wow, you are a breakthrough woman doing amazing work you just edited a blockbuster movie time to get out <laughs> we need you up at the top <laughs> yeah that's so messed up yeah. like it's it's so so bittersweet it's like funny because i was looking at her filmography and i'm like wow okay well that's not very much you know even she did have a 20-year career but uh you know it kind of got cut off right at the height of it but 
the movies and that that she would then make going forward and the opportunities that she was able to probably pass on to more women filmmakers that's what i'm like hoping outweighs the fact that it cut her career as an editor a little short you know although i will say if i just want an oscar for editing and someone wanted me to go be a an executive at a cushy studio, I think I would want to go out on top too. I think that'd be pretty dope. You know, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go be an executive and be in charge for a little while rather than being a, an editor, which don't get no damn respect. I really like her a lot. Who wants to go next? One thing that I think is interesting <clears throat> about the book is how there is a big focus on how the town becomes kind of like an attraction in the movie. Martin has this whole thing where he's like, you're the mayor of Shark City. And there's like this, you know, the news is there and there's a whole fascination. But I love the kind of meta nature of morbid humor or morbid curiosity, rather, which is three people die on a beach. And now the news is there and people are like behind the cameras waving. And (laughs) and you watch it in a movie and you realize like, yeah, that is pretty messed up that we do that. Yet we're all sitting in a theater watching a movie about people dying by a a violent horrible death it's just such a weird dynamic that it that carries through from the book to the movie to the actual viewer yourself and then to the point to where you know if we were on a beach and someone yelled shark we would probably all look for our safety but also just kind of morbid curiosity like how big is this shark yeah (laughs) I just have a couple like fun facts that I didn't know that I'm sure Joe probably knows a lot about already. Uh, so if you have anything to add, just feel free to jump in. Apparently the slates that they used in this film had teeth, which I think is so adorable. <laughs> so Spielberg took on this movie because he thought it would be a great follow-up to his movie Duel, which is basically the same thing, but instead of a killer shark, it's a killer truck. And he was like, oh, yeah, it's like Duel, but underwater. I thought that was interesting. Have you seen Duel? No. Oh, it's really good. Is it good? Yes. I love Duel. My boss told me he took a film class in high school and Duel was part of the curriculum. And that's what changed his mind on like the art of cinema was oh Duel. My God. Oh, wow. It's really good. I mean, it's a TV movie made by young Steven Spielberg. And it is literally just about this guy being stalked by this truck. And there are so many movies that I feel like are influenced by that. I think you would like it a lot. Steven Spielberg was doing bomb ass shit before he was even Steven Spielberg. <laughs> it's, I, it's funny you say that. Cause I hear more about duel, which was a TV movie. Like you said, than I do about Sugarland express, which totally. was his first feature film. Yeah. Like I've heard more people talk about duel. I never hear anyone talk about Sugarland express. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And I think um, Vernon Fields edited Sugarland Express just as a <laughs> as just like a callback to the last point. Okay, sorry. Uh, Duel's awesome. We should totally watch that. Continue. Yeah. Quick take on Duel. Quick take on Duel. <laughs> oh my god, we need a quick take for next week. <laughs> there is so many. Like I am so. Fa- this is totally off topic but keep it in the episode i am so fascinated by your opinion on movies joe that going through this and hearing like what you had to say i was like we need to have a quick take with joe or like like we, i i just want to like pick your brain about something other than jaws um because then think let's do a quick episode. take on duel i mean or just 
movies in general. Like we, I don't want to like pigeonhole again. But our next quick take, I'm saying it now. Our next quick take will be with Joe about Duel and anything else Joe wants to talk about. Okay. <laughs> How, that know. can be the title: Duel and everything else, or anything else Joe wants to talk about. I don't know if uh, Take Three, a movie podcast, is the truck or the uh, the other car in the scenario. Like, I don't know if I'm the impending doom Yo, chasing you down the highway you know, or if you guys are chasing me down the we highway. We are chasing you, <laughs> and we will get you. I don't want to ruin Duel, but uh, we will find you and get you. Yeah, okay, so Joe's our new third member. <laughs> Can I just be, like, the quick take guy? Like, I'm only ever a guest from now on on quick takes. <laughs> You can come I, on this show anytime you want to. Legit. Absolutely. Legit. I'm moving to Virginia. That's it. I'm moving. Do it. Do <laughs> Just it. right in between you guys geographically. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, anyway, yeah, back to Duel. Anything that I saw on it, I was like, this kind of looks silly, and I'm surprised to hear you say that it was good, so I will definitely check it out. Yep. It's great. Uh, Peter Benchley, who wrote the book, the novel, uh, he made a cameo as one of the TV reporters in the 4th of July like beach freakout scene, which was fun. Nice. Chief Brody's dogs are actually Steven Spielberg's dogs, Elma and Zalman. Aww. Uh, yeah, I thought that was cute. Uh, the first the shark... Go ahead. Sorry. I was saying they were so over budget that he had to use his own dogs. Yeah. <laughs> couldn't get it. Oh, God. <laughs> The first shark attack with the girl that's getting pulled underwater, she was rigged to like cables that would like literally pull her under. And not only was she told that when like she wasn't told when it would happen so that that surprise reaction was actually real. Later on, they basically waterboarded her to get some extra audio for like post-production, uh, which was like kind of weird. But uh, I saw on, on an interview with her, she was seemed to be like really on board with it all. So that was that was interesting. The line, we're going to need a bigger boat, was actually ad-libbed, uh, I read, which I thought was... Wow! Yeah, yeah. This movie was just was like a complete accident. I yeah. love that. <laughs> like, that's um, like the most iconic... Oh my god. <laughs> that is so crazy that that was just ad-libbed. Wow. And I'll kind of tie in my last little discussion point um, with this so we can kind of finish this up. But there was a video that I came across that had this film theory about this movie theorized that the real horror of this movie is Brody's struggle with alcoholism. I think it was like too much of a stretch for me uh, to kind of take it seriously, but I'll link the the video in the notes in case you wanted to watch it. Cause I do think it's interesting. I think it brings up some interesting points, but basically the theory goes that uh, Brody was drinking on the job and killed someone or crashed a, a car or something while he was, uh, working for the New York police. Maybe they go in depth with this in the book. I don't know how far they go into that. Do you know, Joe? Um, I do remember that. I do remember that there being, I don't know if it was exactly that he killed someone, but I remember that there's a reason why he leaves New York city. Yeah. Right, that he, right. like he went out to the country to be almost like hot fuzz. Like they, they kind of like retired him out to pasture because right. he couldn't handle the city. But I don't remember if it was about alcoholism or what. So what this video was saying was that he... Or about, you know, hit and run. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think what this video was saying was that it was like because of his alcoholism, like he was drunk and did something wrong. 
Um, but it's basically like it showed all these clips of him drinking. Like he's constantly drinking throughout the whole movie. So he theorized that the the shark that they killed and hung on the docks was the actual shark that that was killing everyone. And the whole rest of the movie is really chasing after his his addiction and like like him finally coming to terms with it and like going after it and and hunting it and facing it and that kind of thing. Wow. Um, I don't know if I buy that. Like, I, I kind of really like the idea that there is this, you know, monster that's an, an actual threat. Because I think the later half of the movie is really when it... I think there's two distinct parts of this movie. I think the first one is, like, very much a horror movie. And I think the second part is is very much like an adventure kind of thing. And I I like that about that. And I, I don't want that theory to take away from from the adventure well, part of it but if anything it lends itself to like uh this being i don't know if you would use allegory as the right word but like a movie that i think can tell the story of addiction without actually just having to be specifically uh about that like it doesn't necessarily have to all be just going on in his head or whatever but like i can understand that the theme of addiction runs through this film that makes sense yeah i think it's definitely a part of it and especially um, under Steven Spielberg's control as a director. Um, I think this movie is so much, like you said, there's the surface level, this is a horror movie. And then there's like, there's, this is a blockbuster adventure. But I think down, like deep down, I do find that the Brody storyline is very much a troubled family storyline. Like even down to his son, Michael, who... Like, he gets him a boat, but he won't let him play in it. He, like, brings his boat to the ocean. He makes him put it in the bay. Like, there's that whole struggle with what do you do when you're the new kid in town and you're starting, like, after school's over? Like, imagine how hard that would be as a 12-year-old boy to go yeah. to move to a new town in the summertime and have to just kind of make friends and figure that out. So he is these this strained relationship with his kids in some way. Um and then there's like we talked about before, like the sentimental moments with his younger child. But then you'd bring in the book and what you can pick up in the film that he and his wife aren't necessarily always eye to eye. Plus, mm -hmm. he's always drinking. Right. Um, even like the way they say goodbye to each other, Ellen and Martin Brody. And she's like, I packed you an extra pair of glasses and this and that. And are you going to be OK? There's so many commentaries about what it means to be like a family man for lack of a better term, but just to be a responsible part of your family as someone who's, you know, has children to protect and a spouse and yada, yada. I think there is a huge part of the movie that is that. And it's sometimes, you know, Brody is the adult in the situation. I think it's just a difficult thing to have to decide whether you're going to ruin the entire economic prospects of a town, but you also know it's the right thing to do. Like those are the struggles our parents go through that we don't see um, with all many yeah. facets of life. And I think that's something that Steven Spielberg definitely put into the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anybody could watch this film and just be like, oh, it's a movie about a town and a shark. Like there is a lot more going on here. Obviously, there's the man versus nature element, but you know man versus himself like is a very big factor here i think to like to wrap that up i think i it's an interesting theory and i think it does bring up discussion 
I just kind of disagree with it because like a, a man died on that trip. So to, to say that it was like all just a, a dream of, of his is kind of strange, but, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll link that in the notes so that you can check it out. Cause it is, it's an interesting, it feels very like, Oh, you know, the Rugrats were all, were all dead and they were all, uh, Angelica's <laughs> like fever dreams or was she made them or, up because or what, well, I don't know what the hell the story is or. Yeah. Or, I mean, we just talked about this in breakfast club where it's like, Oh, yeah. is it all in Allie's mind or something? Like, I yeah. think that tends to be like a cop out, but, uh, I don't know. It's still interesting to discuss. But it is like a way to explore that the the themes of the film are very apparent. It, this film, as is, works very well as a story about a lot of different things. All right. So uh, like I may or may not have stated in take two, you may or may not have heard me say this. Uh, there are like a ton of movies that like ripped off Jaws in one way or another. And uh, I brought up like santa jaws i may have i may have cut that too i don't know but that's like a christmasy shark like there's there's a shark with a santa hat so uh, i'm just gonna name a bunch of ones that i think were funny uh, so there's devouring waves and i did get the um the synopsis for this one it's there's a marine biologist a dolphin trainer a research scientist and a local sheriff to defend florida from a sea monster but it's part shark and part octopus there's a film called alligator and that came out in 1980 and it's a like a an alligator baby that gets flushed down the toilet and then grows up filled with like the steroid filled water Hold on. And so it gets really big and it starts stomping around town. That was a book. Really? That was like a children's book. Does anyone remember this? What kind of children's books did you read? I mean, I mean, I know that storyline. Like, wasn't that also in Hey Arnold, too? There was like an alligator that lived in the sewers. I mean, I know that there was the Rat King. Yeah, it sounds like, and, like and, almost like an urban legend. Like, that, that makes sense. You know, oh, there's alligators, there's gators in the sewers that are growing huge because of all the toxic sludge and shit that they're exposed to. I just remember a children's book. It was like a lighthearted children's book of uh, like a kid who had a little alligator that he would like. Is this the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles origin story? No, it was like a it was it was like a children's book that you'd read to your toddler before bed. We can move on. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I would love to read that children's book. I'll have to yeah. find it. So there's one called Blood Surf. There's a movie called Crocodile. They literally have one for like every sea creature. There's Crocodile, Barracuda, Orca, Octopus, Piranha. Uh, there's one called Tentacles, The Reef, Shark Attack, The Last Shark, Cave of the Sharks, Day of the Shark, Shark Night, Night of the Sharks, Blood Tide. There's Ghost Shark. Open Water, which I actually kind of liked. Blue I liked Demon, Open Water. Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea, I liked. Deep Blue Sea? Yeah. Is that Jessica Alba? Huh? Jessica Alba, right? Deep Blue Sea? Right. And LL Cool, LL cool J's Maybe. in it, too. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes. That's that's who I remember is LL Cool J. Yes. There's Lake Placid. Have you seen Lake Placid? Yeah. Lake Placid. Oh, my God. Okay. So Lake Placid has, like, one of the like cutest twists ever for a monster movie at the end. Do you remember what I'm talking about? No. You got need to rewatch Lake Placid and just there like the last shot of this film is like a twist kind of and it's 
it's just adorable. I for anybody who has seen Lake Placid, maybe you guys can understand what I'm talking about, but uh, that's all I can say about. It. I don't want to spoil it. But that's a great movie. Um, there's Deep Shock, Dark Waters, Malibu Shark Attack, The Megalodon, Blood Beach, uh, and The Meg. I was gonna say, did you guys see The Meg? I did. What was your opinion on it? I think that like the production level was on point and the story was fine. I mean, like, yeah, it, it, if I were to put myself in the situation of a lot of those people, I'd be terrified too. Um, maybe if I had watched it in theaters, it would have had a bigger effect on me. Uh, I can imagine like seeing all of that really big, but I watched it on my like 50 inch television. So it wasn't as hard to watch, but yeah, I, I thought it was all right. I, I liked that there were so many people I knew in it, like so many like famous people. And I liked that there was like a distinct, uh, it seemed like there was like a, 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 like an attempt to make the cast like international as well. So that made me happy. But how did you feel? I, I haven't seen it. I actually, for a reason you pointed out, I wanted to see it. Not because I even thought it was going to be some great piece of cinema, just because I know that that movie on the big screen. Same reason why I saw Kong Skull Island, which is like, even if this is going to be a bad movie on screen, it's something, it's going to be worth $11. Totally, totally. And, and Kong Skull Island was a spectacle and it was, that was it. That was all there was. Listen, do not talk bad about my precious movie, Kong Skull Island. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I love that movie. Well, how do you feel about Godzilla versus Kong? Um, I haven't <laughs> watched it um so <laughs> here's the thing so here's the thing i watched kong skull island is a special place in my heart but we watched the godzilla movies at work over uh -huh. covid like on our lunch breaks like half an hour at a time um <sighs> so yeah <laughs> so Joe. by the time we caught up to it actually worked out pretty well that it was like the release of godzilla vs kong um our whole crew split up because of COVID regulations laxed. So we never got to like see it all as a group. Oh, so, so we haven't watched, so I haven't, so I haven't watched it yet, but Kong Skull Island, this is maybe what Jordan hinted at before, which is I have a very interesting way that I rate movies. <laughs> Kong Skull Island is a three star movie. It's, it's out of how many movie. stars? Uh, two no uh five <laughs> five okay so okay, so I'd so my scale two and a half but yeah that's cool so my scale is basically how worth it there's the, the two barometers are how worth it is it the amount of money you spend for it or would you spend for it and also would you watch it again those are and the two how big of a monkey was in it True. It doesn't have a giant monkey. <laughs> Joe's not interested. Right. And it has to be a handsome monkey. I'm not – I ain't showing up for no ugly monkey. He is um, a sexy-ass monkey. That is a sexy monkey. Right. What the fuck? <laughs> it has to be a handsome monkey? What? <laughs> well, have you seen like some of the bad like King yeah. Kong movies? Yeah. Like I, I can't – I'm not doing it for anything. Uh, anyway. The, the only reason I even brought up Congress – or uh, – Godzilla versus Kong or whatever is that like Kong is like the absolute best part of that movie and if you love Kong 
you will fucking love him in Godzilla vs. Kong. It is badass. He is so cool. Godzilla, Godzilla uh, disrespects him, but it's good. It's still really good. I think we can we can say, I mean, I and this is weird to say in a movie where we definitely need the human characters and we love the human characters, but in so many monster movies, the human characters and storylines could literally be cut from the film and we'd be fine. Like I would love, love to see a King Kong movie with no humans and it would just be the monkeys. And that does not, I do not care that there would be no words because monkeys can't speak English. I would love that. I think that would be so awesome. But for some reason you got to throw in a bunch of people to be doing all these random ass things it's like, I just want to see the monsters. Now, what if there wasn't maybe like a human plot, but still humans? Like, what if the plot line was Kong is on Skull Island and, you know, an airplane crashes and there's people there? Not even like an integral part of the plot, but just that Kong is interacting with human structures. Or even like Godzilla, like even if he's still destroying Tokyo, um, but there's not a human plot to it. I would be on board for that. Yeah, I and I understand part of the reason why they have to have humans in some of these movies, or you know, a, a, part of the reason why they have to have humans in humans in this film is budgetary concerns. It takes a lot to animate a monster like that, and you and having them be the main on-screen presence the entire film, it doesn't seem feasible, you know, uh, but. If there was just a way to maybe just condense it and just tell like a singular story rather than it be feeling like this weird confluence of all these different people in all these all these different boardrooms and and I just like don't ever care about any of it. There is one storyline in Kong versus God, or Godzilla versus Kong that is good and it is deals with like the little girl that can't speak and. Her storyline is really good with with Kong, but everything else is just like I don't want to see this. I'm with you. I'm like what? Because I'm I'm an old man. I'm a bad man to be in a movie with. Because I'm like, who's that guy again? Why is he here? <laughs> yeah, I would get up and move from you. <laughs> not in the but theater. I'm also not like in the loud also in movies, so I totally feel you. I'm like kind of like if if I'm loud. That's one thing, but if anybody else is loud, like no. I think I'm gonna make you a shirt for the movie theater. Like, oh, you can only wear it to the movies, and it just says, "Shut up, I'm talking." And then like, I love on that. the back it'll say like, "Take." <laughs> <laughs> so when someone turns around to shush you, it just says, "Shut up, I'm talking." That's genius. <laughs> I love that. That's really good. Um. Yeah, I I don't know how we got on this, but um, oh, you know what is a good movie that I liked, and it has to do with underwater. It's called Underwater. Underwater. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting the look from Jordan, like, oh my god, uh, we have gone off the deep end. Like, no hey. pun intended. Uh, no, this is, this is we. This is like a huge tangent, but that's it's okay. It's more good. of like. I've not seen any of these movies, so I'm just kind of thinking about more orthodontist jokes, but I haven't. Them, so. <laughs> Tell us one. 
I, I haven't I haven't thought of any good ones, so it's okay. Oh, okay. Well, we can thank you for on. bringing it up. Um, I th- I think you should have said like brace yourself. Oh, oh my god! Holy shit! Quit stealing. Okay, that's when you text me, um, Joe. I'd be like, hey, maybe say this oh, or something. See, I'm not a good podcaster. All right, cut <laughs> that part out. <laughs> that would have been a a really good way to end it. So, like, do you guys have anything else to say? Um. The, the Jessica Alba movie I was thinking about was Into the Blue, not Deep Blue Sea. Oh, I Into like the, Into the Blue too when they're like stealing shit and it's like treasure. Yeah, that's like a cocaine shipwreck. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. a shipwreck, I think. Yeah, like yeah, divers. I like that movie too. Cool. Okay, well, maybe we should end on something other than that. Uh... <laughs> Wait, you didn't tell me a Rotten Tomatoes score for Jaws. Oh, it's 98%. It's literally on, in my notes wow. up top. 98% Rotten Tomato score. It's compelling, well-crafted storytelling and a judicious sense of terror ensure Steven Spielberg's Jaws has remained a benchmark in the art of delivering modern blockbuster thrills. And how. <laughs> Jordan, do you have any, uh, any more orthodontist jokes for us? No, stay tuned for next week loser i'm sorry google it i'd be googling why are you not googling it right now? we can be, uh, oh God. i would give you more orthodontist jokes but i'm afraid it would just be a filling shut up uh, joe <laughs> yeah keep like setting you up but there's just a cavity in the audio i give up okay so instead of instead of having three people for take three it's only going to be two but joe is taking my place clearly because he does it better than i can so it's been a great run y'all i hope you enjoyed the new the new hosts it's been fun i guess i'm out (laughs) (laughs) i'd like to thank our special guest jordan for visiting us truly take three movie podcast Truly. Yes, thank you for coming on, Jordan. It's, I'm so so glad that uh, that I could be here. Thanks. And what what are your uh, social media handles so people can find you? Because they're not take three. <laughs> I'm ending this now because this is it. If I was on any other podcast, this is this is what I'd be promoting. I have nothing else in my life. Nothing. This is it. And you've taken that away from me, Joe. I hope you're happy. <laughs> Oh my God, Jordan! You should do the outro. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not doing the outro. I'm. I'm ending this joke right now. I'm stopping recording. Hey, folks! Thank you for listening to this episode of Take Three, a movie podcast. If you like the episode half as much as Matt Hooper likes sharks, please leave these guys a five star review. And if you think Nick and Jordan need a bigger boat, subscribe to Take Three, a movie podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. If you want to hear more from me, you can catch me on Instagram at Joseph Stingel for updates on my music and visual art, or you can catch me by tying a bunch of barrels to my head to pull me up from the depths of the ocean. See you on the beach. <laughs>